Welcome to Women on the Line, a national feminist current affairs program produced by women and gender non-conforming people at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Priya Kunjan. Before we begin, a content note for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners and people that have experienced domestic and family violence. Today's program includes general discussion of the stolen generations without specific details of people's experiences, and my conversation with Mina Singh covers domestic and family violence concerns, specifically as they affect Aboriginal women and families, but again, without specific details of incidents. First up on today's show, you'll hear a conversation with Muriel Spiram, a Gamilare Kuma Morawari singer, songwriter, and actor, about her new track, Sardine Baby. This track was written and released just prior to the anniversary of the Bringing Them Home report on 26th May to commemorate the Stolen Generations, and particularly artist and member of the Stolen Generations, Auntie Sharon Egan. Keep this story in mind when you listen to the track. The second part of the program features a discussion with Mina Singh, who's a Yorta Yorta and Indian woman and legal director at Human Rights Law Centre. Mina joins me to speak about the urgent need to change bail laws in Victoria, which has been raised by the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service in a letter addressed to the Victorian government that was sent on the 28th of May, and also discusses the multifaceted impacts of the criminal legal system on Aboriginal women and families particularly those experiencing domestic and family violence. This provides broader context to the need for legislative change, but also situates these harms within the violence of colonialism in general. First up, Muriel Spiram. I'm joined by Muriel Spiram, who put out her new single, Sardine Baby, on Tuesday the 25th of May. Muriel, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, I'm really excited to come come along and chat with you today. Thanks for having me. No worries. Um, so would you mind introducing yourself in a little bit more detail? So, um, yep, as you mentioned, my name is Muriel Theorem. I am from Gimilare Kuruma Murawari Nations. Yeah, and I've been down here in Victoria or on Kulin country working um, in the arts for the last 10 years. And yeah, I'm really excited to be releasing or have released now my latest single, Sardine Baby. Wonderful. And it's a fantastic track. Stay tuned because you will hear it right after this interview. Um, but this was released on uh, Tuesday the 25th, which is a day before Sorry Day, which is Wednesday the 26th of May, the anniversary of the Bringing Them Home report. And Sardine Baby pays homage to the stolen generations and specifically focuses on the story or draws from the story of stolen generations survivor Auntie Sharon Egan. Um, so could you tell us a bit about what inspired you to write the song and about your experience working with Auntie Sharon to develop it? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I was really fortunate to meet Annie Sharon at her exhibition of her starting babies. And um, luckily there was a Q&A after the exhibition where she was telling us about her life and her experiences at the home when she was a girl and how they, her and the other girls would make these sardine babies. And, um, you know, I was just so blown away by her as a beautiful human being, but also by her strength and her resilience 
but also how open she was to people and, and like her capacity for love, if that makes sense. Mm. Just, you know, given what she had been through from a young age. Yeah. And, you know, that's what I love about our mob is no matter, you know, what, what we're going through or what policies are trying to be put on our people or, you know, because there's a lot going on at the moment. So I just love that we as a community come together and support one another and we're walking together. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. But also there's still so much space for, for joy, laughter and love, most importantly, even amongst the hurt, the pain or of everyday life, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And I think that really comes through in, in the lyrics of Sardine Baby and that love as well in times of real hardship. So could you explain to listeners what a Sardine Baby is? Yeah. So the girls, they weren't given, you know, many like toys. They weren't given toys or luxuries, and but they were fed sardines. So the sardine cans, if any of the girls found that, found that they that was like treasure. And then if they found any like old cloth or, or fabric that had been torn or something from an old garment, mm-hmm. then um, that was like treasure again. And yeah, then out of that, they'd make their little baby and yeah, put that in the sardine and that was their sardine baby. Music has been such a powerful avenue for truth-telling about experiences of the stolen generations, you know, most famously by survivors like Uncle Archie Roach, who took the children away. Um, But how do you see music as an avenue for truth and storytelling about kinship, colonialism, and also resistance across the generations? Yeah, well, you know, I think it's really just an extension of what our people have been doing from the beginning of time, just sharing stories through song, through art, through dance. I'm just doing that now in a, you know, contemporary way today. But I'm essentially telling our story and our song through that way. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And it's absolutely important for us as First Nations people to really take the driver's seat, so to speak, in telling our stories, in shaping how we are viewed. Mm. Um, I think it's important for us to to really take ownership of that and yeah, as much as possible for our stories to be out there, to be shared and to be told by us, for us. In your own voices. Exactly. So who are some of your biggest musical influences and would you like to shout anyone out? Yeah, of course. Like uh, Uncle Archie Rose is absolutely amazing. Deborah Cheatham, you know, she's been a mentor of mine in the past for different projects and for my play that I did, uh, Black Cat, a few years ago, like, she's a phenomenal, amazing black pioneer. And, um, yeah, Annie Ruby Hunter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's just like so many, the list could go on and on. So, Sardine Baby is uh, a single that's coming off your new album, which is soon to be released. Um, could you tell people uh, when to expect that album, what it's called, and where people can get a copy of Sardine Baby now? Yep. So Sardine Baby is live on all platforms. So you can follow me on Spotify, Instagram, Facebook, <laughs> uh, Twitter if you really want to. <laughs> It's on YouTube, it's on Google Play, it's on iTunes, so you can purchase there, or you can also go on Bandcamp and purchase the song from Bandcamp, and it's on SoundCloud too. So I'm in the process of recording the album, 
this year and it will be released in February next year. And it's called From My Heart. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about Sardine Baby and also give us a little bit of a a window into your influences and your thinking behind writing this. Um, I really appreciate you making the time to chat. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Women on the Line, and that was Muriel Spiram, a singer, songwriter, and actor discussing her new song, Sardine Baby. Here's the track.
That was Sardine Baby by Muriel Spearham. We now turn to the issue of bail laws in the state of Victoria, where the introduction of draconian laws that greatly reduce people's chance of being granted bail were introduced in 2017 after the Burke Street incident. I caught up with Meena Singh, who's a Yorta Yorta and Indian woman and legal director at Human Rights Law Centre, to discuss bail reform in Victoria in more detail, drawing on the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Services letter that was addressed to the Victorian government on the 28th of May, calling for urgent change of these bail laws, contextualising this within broader conversations about the impacts of the carceral system on Aboriginal women and families, and specifically talking about issues of domestic and family violence but also of the continued stolen generations. I'm speaking with Meena Singh, a Yorta Yorta and Indian woman and legal director at Human Rights Law Centre. Hey Meena, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you so much for having me. So Human Rights Law Centre is a signatory of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Services 28th May letter to the Victorian government, which calls for urgent bail reform in the state. And Victoria's current harsh bail laws have been in place since about 2017. So could you give us a bit of a broad brush overview of the current bail laws in Victoria and some of the key concerns raised by Val's and other signatories of that letter? Yeah, so we saw these bail, these new, our current laws come into effect following the uh, terrible Burke Street incident uh, where someone drove a vehicle down Burke Street and very sadly killed a number of people and this person was a person who was on bail and there was a lot of concern around how this person was on bail and so there was a review of our bail laws and the result of that was the introduction of these very tough bail laws that we now have today. What we have are bail laws that were specifically introduced to target violent offending by men in that, that specific context but what we're seeing is that these bail laws particularly target women experiencing disadvantage and particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. Mm. And the way they do that is that we now have a reverse onus in regards to someone getting bail. So previously, there was a presumption of bail unless it, there were certain circumstances. Now we see people having to themselves explain why they should get bail. Often people are doing that without legal representation and the circumstances that they have to explain why they should get bail uh, applies to a much broader range of offending. So we're seeing uh, women who are experiencing financial hardship, they might be uh, dealing with family violence which can lead to all sorts of housing stability and, and lead them into homelessness and, and poverty. We're seeing lots of these women get trapped by uh, these bail laws. And when a woman doesn't get bail, she's kept in custody, in jail. She is disconnected from her family. She's disconnected from her community, from her culture, from her kids, from employment. There's just a, a stop, a breakdown in all of her, in her life, basically. And even the shortest of stays in, in prison can have a massive impact on on a person's life. Mm, absolutely. And I mean, for people who are sort of familiar with things happening in uh, the criminal legal space and around uh, Aboriginal communities advocating uh, for change, we've seen, you know, the tragic death of baby Charlie in Western Australia, um, which yeah. occurred, you know, when 
um, when a mother seeking assistance with a domestic violence incident was then was then picked up. Yeah, it's this real intersection between experiences as victims of family violence and the criminal legal system that is particularly trapping Aboriginal women um, and having just horrible impacts on Aboriginal women and their children. We see a lot of Aboriginal women not want to report family violence because of fears that their children will be removed from them rather than getting assistance to to have the family violence stop or to, to, you know, mother and children move to a safer space. We're seeing, sadly, far too many Aboriginal women getting incorrectly identified as perpetrators of Mm. family violence. So they're being charged with offences. Intervention orders are being taken out against them when often the real story is that they um, haven't engaged at all in family violence or they've been in or they've responded to family violence in self-defence. Yeah. And, you know, that's a real concern when there isn't a proper understanding of, of the way family violence is experienced by women, but also when there's no proper understanding of the very, very fractured, fraught relationship and deep distrust that Aboriginal women have for police. Absolutely. And, you know, these conversations are happening uh, currently in the state of New South Wales about uh, criminalizing coercive control. And I understand that in Victoria, there already are some mechanisms in place around that. But, um, you know, something that really isn't being amplified in these conversations is the specific effects that this has on Aboriginal women and families and um, Aboriginal people escaping family violence situations or seeking to escape those situations. Yeah. And, you know, often when we talk about family violence, when an Aboriginal woman is the victim of family violence, of intimate partner violence, we don't talk enough about the fact that it's not simply, it's not only Aboriginal men who are inflicting violence, mm. it is non-Aboriginal men, men from all sorts of different backgrounds who are inflicting violence on Aboriginal women. And, you know, you have to understand these issues in the context of both racism and sexism and mm. that potentially if an Aboriginal woman is in a relationship with a non-Aboriginal man and is experiencing family violence, that those are two very difficult sets of powers, you know, control systems that are being dealt with that can be abused by the perpetrator of family violence. Mm-hmm. You know, an Aboriginal woman calling the police, you know, so she actually does call the police, you know, and she's upset, she's hysterical, but her partner presents as, you know, rational and as stable and able to speak calmly to, to the police and deny what's been said. You know, there's all these other layers of power interplay that come into these relationships um, that make it really difficult for the stories of Aboriginal women to be understood. Yeah, and, you know, this is not to say that these power imbalances don't exist in, in other relationships, but really that they are exacerbated by the effects of colonization, but also the specific mm. interaction, um, you know, through the colonial development of policing in this country um, yeah. that really specifically affects Indigenous people. Yeah, and, it, and it's, you know, it's an extension of this idea of, of Aboriginal people being inherently criminal, that, that we're just you know, we're bad people, that we always do the wrong thing. You know, that sort of narrative was brought into Australia about, you know, Aboriginal people, anyone who wasn't white being inferior. And so that provides a lot of the justification for Aboriginal men and particularly women when combined with with sexism, provides the justification to to treat Aboriginal women appallingly. And we see that play out in policing and we see that play out in prisons. Turning to 
the question of uh, families uh, more generally, the anniversary of Sorry Day, which commemorating, uh, which is commemorating the Stolen Generations, passed on the 26th of May. And yeah. we know that the removal of Indigenous children from their families in this country is still shamefully an ongoing and increasing phenomenon. So yeah. do you see any impacts associated with current Victorian bail laws and other failures in the implementation of uh, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody on current rates of Aboriginal children in out-of-home care in the state? It's really important to look at this holistically so you, and, and, and see the intersections between different areas. The way governments work is very, is very siloed. We have ministers for all these different things and portfolios and departments for lots of different issues that aren't seeing how issues play out across in the experiences of, of, of Aboriginal families. So one of the legacies of the stolen generation is intergenerational trauma and that, you know, the trauma that goes with someone throughout their whole life as having been removed from their parents at a very young age, age having been placed in homes where they were most likely, well, we know overwhelming evidence supports says that they were abused in every possible way, or you know they were adopted out to families where you know their identities weren't supported, their cultural connections weren't supported. You know these sorts of traumas, if unaddressed, continue for a lifetime, and we see that the health outcomes for members of the stolen generation are particularly poor, especially around mental health, and you know for those families, those adults to grow up and have kids. And you combine these issues with over-policing of Aboriginal people, which uh, leads to over-representation of Aboriginal people in criminal justice systems. And what you see is the justice system also breaking up families, taking away adults from their families, as I said at the start, talking about Aboriginal mothers going into prison and leaving families left behind, so fracturing families that way. But also, we have a, a age of criminal responsibility at just 10 years of age. Mm. Ten, you know, children as young as 10 years of age can be arrested, prosecuted, put in jail for, for offences. So we see families facing so much fracturing from a whole range of places. And so we see the family unit really getting besieged by a whole range of factors that we need to think holistically about and think about the interconnection between all of these factors. Absolutely. I'm really glad that you brought up the the age of criminal responsibility because that really brings together all of these different kinds of concerns where when we think about changes that really need to be made to the criminal justice system, acknowledging that that can you know never really be a quote-unquote safe place, um, but that there are all areas that need to be addressed here. You know, it's um, across across the spectrum. And when you think about things like the criminalization of poverty and how that intersects with this, it's very multifaceted. So I appreciate you contextualizing it in that way. Yeah, and I think, you know, just the same as wealth can pass between generations, poverty passes between generations. And, you know, if you we know how much more likely people are to get engaged in the criminal legal system if they're experiencing poverty, homelessness, if they're battling with, with mental illness or physical illness. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you um, taking the time to contextualize this in a broader way and really situate the importance of uh, Val's call for these changes mm. to Victorian bail laws because yep. I think if we just look at the bail laws themselves, we don't see the full picture. So thank you for putting that into perspective, Mina.
No, that's okay. And, and I mean, Val sees the impact of this every day. They, they are the frontline workers. They are the ones representing Aboriginal men and women and they see how these laws impact in, in the people that they represent, in the cases they hear every day. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me about this. That's okay. Yeah, really appreciate um, your insight. My pleasure. Absolute pleasure. That was Mina Singh from Human Rights Law Centre, providing some more detail on the harms of current Victorian bail laws for Aboriginal women and families. Before we finish up, here's Narita Waite, CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, talking about just how important it is to change these laws. You know, they're just asking for a fair justice system. Mm. They're just asking to reverse the changes that were made out of that instinct rather than evidence-based policy. We're asking the government to lead, not to follow. We're asking them to follow their moral conscience um, and their desire and want um, as seen by a lot of interests in putting place like and conviction, like public drunkenness, for a fair, a fair and just future for all, not just some. To read the full letter that Val's addressed to the Victorian state government on the 28th of May about the importance of reforming draconian bail laws, you can head to vals.org.au. That's V-A-L-S.org.au. That's all we've got time for today on Women on the Line. If you want to listen back to this episode, you can head to 3cr.org.au slash women on the line, where our podcasts are all uploaded, so you can find our older episodes there too. Women on the Line is produced and presented by women and gender diverse people in the studios of 3CR Community Radio on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. Women on the Line is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network, and this is made possible with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is made by Ripley Kabara. I'm Priya Kunjan, and tune in to Women on the Line next week on your community radio station. We'll catch you then. Told us to read, to write and pray Then they took the children away Took the children away Yeah, took the children away They were snatched from their mother's breast Said this is for the best Took them They took the children away Yeah, the children away Breaking our mother's heart Tearing our soul apart Took them away You've been listening to a podcast produced at 3CR Community Radio. It's Radiothon time. This is when we ask you, the listener, to help power community radio. This year, we need to raise $250,000 to keep the station going. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference. It's so easy to donate. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. We rely on the community's support. Donate to keep community-powered podcasts going for another year. Thanks for listening.